Good evening, everyone. It's so wonderful to see all of you here this evening. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs at the Pratt, and, and I'm happy to welcome you here. Just wanted to say that there are program flyers and our July-August compass are on the table in the back, and we hope you'll pick them up. We um, do have some things happening here in July and August, um, and so we hope to see you again. The, these Writers Live programs are supported in part by a generous grant from PNC Bank, and we, we thank them very much for their support. I start my day, as many, probably many of you do, listening to NPR and Morning Edition. I'm not a Morning Joe person. I'm a Morning Edition person. And David Green's voice is one of the voices that... Um, gets me going in the morning. Um, it's truly a pleasure to welcome David to the Pratt and to meet the person who belongs to that familiar voice on the radio. Uh, David spent several years as NPR's Moscow bureau chief, and he rode the Siberian Express several times from Moscow to Vladivostok. Accompanied by a NPR, a Russian employee of NPR, he, um, who served as his translator and his friend and traveling companion, um, and his friend Sergei uh, helped translate for him and also helped explain the Russian culture. They stopped in cities and towns along the way and along this 6,000-mile route, and as we travel along with David and Sergei, we meet Russians of all stripes and discover the complexities of this vast country. It's a fascinating journey. I've read the book and enjoyed um, following their travels and meeting all of the people with them. And we're delighted that Dave, David was able to come up from um, DC and share his travels with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you all so much. This is really cool to see such a large audience. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, you coming out. Um, it was a long day. I actually uh, I thought that I would wake up as I usually do at two uh, thirty in the morning and host our show this morning, and then nap all afternoon. But then at the last minute, uh, I was called into a Bernie Sanders interview. Um, and whatever you think of Bernie Sanders, uh, it's not something that you can sort of sleepwalk through. He is a very intense individual. So standing, uh, going to Capitol Hill and talking to him um, was really, uh, it was something else. The, the conversation ended with something, uh, something like me asking him, you know, a lot of people compare you to other candidates in the past uh, who have, you know, underdogs, who have sort of hurt their parties. Um, favored candidates and, and ended up, uh, you know, bringing a person from the other party into the White House. And he kind of said, uh, excuse, excuse, excuse me, uh, do we live in a democracy? What are you talking about? Um, so that's your preview for the 11 minutes of Bernie Sanders that'll be on tomorrow morning. Uh, it, this really is like uh, coming home. Uh, I worked for the Baltimore Sun right out of college. I lived about six blocks from here, um, I feel a deep, deep connection to Baltimore, except for its football team being a diehard Pittsburgh Steelers fan. But uh, aside from that, um, uh, the connection is, is really, really deep. And, and I love this city a lot. So, so coming and spending the evening with you is, is really meaningful. I wanted to just give you 
a, a little bit of background about uh, my career and approach to journalism, which is sort of the backdrop um, of this book. Uh, so I started as a newspaper reporter at The Sun, uh, was in Washington for a little while, and then was in Westminster uh, for when there was a Carroll County zoned edition of The Sun, um, and competed uh, every day with the Carroll County Times. And it was just, it was journalism at its best. Uh, you know, our Main Street Bureau in Westminster, uh, you learned accountability as a journalist because if someone was not happy with what you had written, they would literally wander into uh, our storefront bureau and come right up to your desk and say, are you David Green? Right, so that was not spelled correctly and here's what was wrong with that story. And you're sort of looking up and being like, oh, you're standing right over my desk. That's fantastic. Uh, And after covering the first four years of George W. Bush's White House for The Sun, I made the transition to radio, and it was a little clunky. Uh, I was very, very lucky because when I got to NPR, I was covering the White House with Don Gagne, who is a dear, dear friend and colleague of mine, and Don gave me a lot of advice about radio writing and kind of the power of hearing voice. how to use sound, how, you know, devices in radio. And I made the mistake of not taking one piece of advice from Don. Uh, we shared this little tiny booth in the West Wing, uh, the NPR booth, and he told me, you know, David, when you're tracking a piece and recording things, you want to keep the door of this little booth closed. But, you know, let me tell you something. You've got to open it after th- that because you won't know what's going on in the outside world. You're kind of sealed in. Totally forgot that my first day, and I was sitting there sort of just, you know, looking over notes or reading or I don't know what I was doing. I was just having a moment and saying, like, I'm covering the White House for NPR. I'm really excited about this. This is really cool. And the phone rang, and it was my editor, Ron, and he was really frantic. And I said, hey, Ron. He said, hey, David, what's going on there? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm your guy covering the White House today. You know, I'm, for day one, here I am. He said, well, I, I got CNN on. The White House was evacuated. <laughs> And I said, whoa, Ron, I, you know, uh, let me do some reporting on that. I'm going to check. Uh, and I opened the door, and it was really dark. Uh, and there was a kind of a security light flashing, and a Secret Service agent was as surprised to see me as I was to see him and said, what's going on? And he said, well, there's a small plane in White House airspace, and so maybe you remember this. And uh, so we shut down the White House and evacuated. Why are you still here? And I said, well, I was locked in my office, and maybe I should leave now. And he said, no, you're probably safer staying here with me. So I made the argument later to Ron that I was actually better positioned than any reporter um, from any news organization. Uh, But things cleared pretty quickly. But when you come to NPR you, as a serious news reporter, you sort of want to be on Morning Edition or All Things Considered. You don't really want to be on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, but Peter Sagel's producer called and, and brought me onto the show, and they played Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins uh, from uh, Top Gun. And uh, they, they said there was this plane that entered White House airspace, and they evacuated, and everyone left except for NPR's David Green, who's on the line right now. And David, what were you doing in the White House? Uh, So that was my debut. Um, Things improved from there. Uh, And I want to tell you about one incredibly powerful day because uh, it's the most poignant day of my career. Um, And it uh, sort of, I still reflect on it when I think about journalism. 
uh, it was uh, some months after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, it was April 27, 2006, and I flew with the president to New Orleans, and he was doing, you know, what could best be described as sort of a, you know, a, a photo op that the White House would always do. He went to the home of a, a woman named Ethel Williams, uh, African-American, the upper ninth ward uh, in her 70s. Her house had been decimated. She was living with her daughter across the river. And the president met her, came outside with Mrs. Williams, uh, said, you know, I'm going to get you your house back. Mrs. Williams said, well, Mr. President, when you do, I'm going to cook you some gumbo and dirty rice. And they bonded. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was an emotional day. And I left, uh, and we were sort of carted back to the airport, loaded onto Air Force One, uh, and I called my mother in Pennsylvania uh, and told her kind of about Ethel Williams, and my mother told me, she, she was a professor at Franklin and Marshall College, she told me she had won a teaching award, and I was going to come up a few weeks later and see her, uh, and then we flew from New Orleans to Andrews Air Force Base and landed uh, and I found out that my mother had died suddenly while I was in flight. And obviously, as you can imagine, this is uh, the most stunning and painful day of my life. Now, my mother, I should tell you, was was really an inspiration to me as a journalist and as a person. Uh, she was this big character. You know, she taught college. She would walk across campus. She had these dogs. Everyone knew her. And she sort of just had this belief in life that everyone had a story to tell. And as an aspiring journalist, that is so, so meaningful because she was friends with everyone. She would stop and talk to students. She would stop and talk to faculty members. She would stop and talk to people who worked in facilities. She would stop and talk to absolute strangers uh, and just loved people and was curious about them. And at moments when I would be with her and feel sort of rushed, like there was something we had to get to, you know, she was interested in their stories. And so somehow all of that happening that day, you know, I knew that I had to go back and see Ethel Williams. Uh, and so I did. And, you know, there were all sorts of assumptions that you could make about her. You know, here is... Uh, a woman who's black, who lives in an inner city in the United States, pollsters would say, you know, she's probably not that likely to support George W. Bush. Um, you could have assumed she's probably really upset at him for not getting her house back. Because when I went back to see her again, she was still living in her daughter's house and the house had still not been rebuilt. And I sat with her for just, you know, hours. Um, and she would tell me, you know, I'm getting this house back, you know, the president told me I'm getting this house. And I would say, Mrs. Williams, I mean, there are people who would say that a politician is the last person to trust. I mean, what she's, and she looked at me, she's like, what's your name again? I'm going to call you when I get that house back. And I loved her sort of surprising take. I loved her just real faith in kind of the political system and a politician I loved her hope. Um, I loved her optimism in, in the face of just, you know, real hardship. And her story didn't end uh, well. She eventually did get funding to have her house rebuilt, uh, but she passed away uh, of cancer um, right around the same time and never moved into that house. But, you know, she taught me and my mother taught me that, you know, you treat people in this profession with 
respect and you listen and you never make assumptions. And instead of going to a place and sort of having the story already in your mind, you go and you listen as best you can. And you listen as the stories come together and you sort of see the portrait of a place um, building, you know, sort of voice by voice and story by story. And so that has always been the approach to, to journalism that I've tried to take, whether it's interviews, whether it's going to places and traveling, uh, just to be a respectful listener. And so when I was dispatched to Moscow, um, going to a you know, pretty unfamiliar country, but one I was really fascinated by, uh, that's what I really wanted to do as best as I possibly could. And so spent you know, almost three years uh, traveling around Russia, traveling around the former Soviet Union, and just trying to, to capture this country and its people. Uh, and it's a country that has been through so much hardship, and it's a country that is really confounding in many ways. It can be maddening, um, confusing. It's just hard to figure out where it's going, both for outside observers and for Russians themselves. But, you know, I was, I was a listener, and I was a, a curious outsider who was willing to give people time to speak. And so as I was wrapping up my tenure in, uh, in Moscow uh, at the end of 2011, uh, my foreign editor had this crazy idea. Uh, he said, why don't we put an exclamation point on your uh, time in Russia? Why don't you jump on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and uh, take it all the way across from Moscow to Vladivostok and just see who you meet? And, you know, he didn't have to ask me twice. Uh, I thought this was the best idea imaginable. And uh, so Sergei Sotnikov, who's the Moscow producer for NPR, uh, jumped on board. We brought a photographer from Washington. And my wife, uh, who is Sicilian Lebanese and who reminds me constantly that she has Mediterranean blood that was in no way made to exist in Russia... Uh, and certainly not in Siberia aboard a train in the dead of winter. Um, but uh, she came along as well. And this was the end of 2011. And if you remember some of the news from Russia at that point, there were anti-government protests on the streets of Moscow. And a lot of the reporting in the West seemed to suggest that Russia was you know, moving towards its own Arab Spring, that Vladimir Putin was, was really vulnerable. Um, and, you know, in Moscow, I don't blame a lot of people for getting that feeling. I was there and those protests were inspiring and to protest in Russia is no small thing. It is an amazing act of courage. I mean, this is a country where the president once said, if you are protesting on the streets without uh, a license, then you should be clubbed in the head. Uh, so it, it, it takes courage, it's risk, um, it's powerful. But at the same time, riding on the train, uh, you know, you just, we didn't see the, the signs of revolution building in, in any sort of large way. This was a country that was not close to overthrowing a government. It was a country in a much more nuanced and complicated place, one that is not all that different from where Russia seems to be today. And, and so listening to the stories from places far, far outside Moscow taught me so much about the country. And so I returned and produced these stories for Morning Edition, came back and began hosting Morning Edition, thought that, you know, I was sort of turning to a new chapter in my 
life and career. Uh, and then out of the blue, I got uh, a call from an agent uh, named Howard, who I'd never met in my life. And uh, he said he wanted to have drinks with me because he thought we should turn this Trans-Siberian thing into a book. And I said, well, Howard, I mean, I, I just started this new job. I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is not all that fun. It doesn't seem all that conducive to working on a book. You're telling me I would have to go back and take the train again. That's a lot. And he just said, just write me like a paragraph of you know a story from from the train and so i wrote it for him and he said dad this is really i love this thing it's like you've got the train it's the vessel that that readers are sort of there with you and then they can explore a russian town then get back on the train this familiar atmosphere you know this traveling taking this epic journey it's like a it's a proven sort of device for for writers like you got to do this book just write me like 10 more pages and i was like howard i see what you're doing it's <laughs> like you're trying to get me to write a book proposal without realizing it uh, and he did not deny that, uh, but I became his willing victim. And before I knew it, he had sold this idea to Norton, my publisher, and I was off to uh, Moscow again to ride the train 6,000 miles across to Vladivostok, uh, and off we went. Uh, and so those two trips are the basis of, uh, of this book. Uh, and you know, I want to sort of take you on to the train and the trip and do a couple readings just to give you a feel for what I think is kind of the organic way that stories came to us. Um, and, and, you know, I took an approach that was not, I wasn't seeking to have some definitive answer about Russia or, or some deep conclusion. You know, I was trying to understand the country as best I could, you know, person by person and voice by voice. And so I should say the the train that you are traveling in uh, is, it's sort of, um, it's crazy. Uh, it makes Amtrak seem very, very boring. Uh, there's a lot of life on a Russian train, uh, especially if you're in third class, which uh, we did quite often. Uh, you're just basically in an empty, in, a, in an open dormitory room, uh, where if you're standing right here, you're walking down an aisle, there would be two bunks right here and then four bunks here and if you know there's certain rules if you're in an upper bunk the understanding is that it's acceptable to basically step on your neighbor's face to get up and <laughs> climb on top but you have to sort of use your your muscles and be a gymnast to actually make it up top and there's nothing a russian traveler likes more than to see an idiot american sort of fall flat in his face trying to make it up to the the top bunk i describe the snoring as orchestral uh, it would sort of begin with one person snoring and then someone would kind of pick up and it would become this beautiful symphony uh, that would keep you awake all night long, which was just great. And my wife did not, uh, which won't surprise you, come for the entire second trip. Uh, but she joined me for about six days and I had failed to mention to her that Sergey and I had decided to go third class uh, this time. And uh, we, we were in the city of Novosibirsk getting ready to board the train. Rose, had, Rose, my wife, had flown in and we're walking along the train platform. And she was saying to me, why are we walking past all of these first and second class cars? And I was like, well, I didn't tell you something. Uh, and so we got on this train and I said, you know, third class has not been that bad. There have been a lot of families. It's been very welcoming. You know, you meet people. That was not the case on this night. Uh, we got on a train car that was literally packed full of 22-year-old men coming from Central Asia to look for construction jobs in Russia. And we got on, and they just started hooting and hollering at my wife, who was the only woman on the train car. 
So she proceeded to take out her iPhone and started uh, filming a video. Uh, and she started narrating and saying, Dear children, uh, if you are seeing this, it means that your father lived through this experience. Uh, I did not kill him for putting me through what you're about to see. And she started filming around the train car. And so this will, this will live forever. And I will be reminded constantly of, of what I did to my wife. Um, but so we rode on this, this crazy train and met a lot of Russians along the way and met a lot of Russians... Uh, when we would get off the train and spend, you know, a couple days sort of traveling around. And the, f- the first stop that, uh, that I want to tell you about is the city of uh, Yaroslavl, uh, which, um, if you follow Russian news, had a, a horrific tragedy. Uh, the Yaroslavl Lokomotiv, um, the hockey team, uh, Russian hockey team, uh, the first... They were ready to, to begin their season. They boarded their plane to fly to an away game, and the plane, shortly after takeoff, crashed, killing the entire team. I mean, it was it was awful. Uh, and if you know what sports passion is like in the United States, uh, it's it is as much or more when it comes to you know a hockey loving city like Yaroslavl. It was absolutely devastating, and so. Uh, Sergey and I decided to go see a game. Um, uh, this was about a year after the crash. Uh, they had sort of formed a new team, taking some players from other teams in the league. And we decided we wanted to go meet the parents of one of the fallen hockey players. Uh, his name was Nikita. He died at 21 years old. Um, and his parents lived in uh, a city, Rubinsk, not far from Yaroslavl. And so Sergey and I uh, were on our way to their flat. And I told Sergey that we should get some some flowers to bring to Nikita's mother. And I said, you know, we should pick up a half dozen roses or something like that. And Sergey said, David, you have to be really careful um, with, you know, deciding on flowers in Russia because the Russians are very superstitious. You know, an even number of flowers is actually bad luck. Um, it means, you know, someone's in mourning or it means there's been tragedy. Uh, an odd number of flowers is is good luck. Uh, and so... Sergey and I, who had both lost our mothers at a relatively young age, you know, were sort of saying, you know, when do you decide that you've moved past the death of, of a loved one? And we made a decision that, that, you know, a year on, maybe this couple had at least reached a point where they were trying to move forward after losing their son. And so we decided to get um, an odd number of flowers. Uh, and so we walked in to the apartment and met Lubov, Nikita's mother, she sort of looked at the flowers and gave this approving smile. So I thought that we had done the right thing. And we sat down and talked to her for, for uh, a couple hours. And her husband, Sergei, came in for a little bit. They took us into uh, Nikita's bedroom, which was sort of a shrine to their son. They had a photo of him in his hockey uniform. And they had put his hockey gloves themselves, the actual gloves sort of coming out of the photo where his hands were. Um, and we talked about kind of, how they did in the the days and weeks following the accident. And, and I'll just read a little bit of this. What strikes Lubov most is the uncanny attitude of public officials and other people in power when tragedy strikes. When it comes to ordinary people, we felt support from everywhere, the entire community. We felt everyone was with us and shared this with us. But as for the other category, the government and team management, the attitude from their side to those who suffered is a situation impossible to find in any other country. 
No one from the team ever called us to ask how we were doing. I wondered if some part of that is a sense that tragedy is just part of life and a way to make people stronger. And Lubov nodded. There is this belief in our country that tragedy is a test for people who are supposed to be strong. And Sergei and I are strong. That's why we'll get through this. I still have both parents alive. Sergei has his parents. Nikita loved his grandparents very much. So, and so we can't be weak. We have our old people to take care of and they need our support. We've always needed revolutions and wars, Nikita's dad said, because after each of those tragedies, we rise and are reborn again. But why do people in Russia believe that, I asked. Lubov thought for a moment. We probably don't know how to live any other way. And so it just struck me after speaking to them, it's, it's not as if, you know, we can't connect in this country to the sense of tragedy making you stronger. Um, but it just seemed so embedded in this couple as if things like this had to happen. Uh, and the other thing that struck me that, that um, sort of spoke to something that I heard from a lot of people in Russia was that when there was tragedy or hardship during Soviet times, there was this belief in the Soviet system and government. Uh, it was sort of a, you know, an ideology and a glue that held people together and gave them faith in something. But the, the Russian government of today doesn't inspire that kind of hope. And so it's both a feeling of having to suffer through tragedy without that safety net there. And, and it was really, really sad. Um, and, and there was another telling moment after Sergei and I left, uh, seeing Nikita's parents, there was one other stop I wanted to make. Uh, there had been a gulag, uh, not far from Rubinsk, the city where they lived. And, uh, you know, the, the gulags are sort of known more for in Russia's east, but, uh, there were parts in, in Western Russia as well. Um, and we left their apartment building and we were with a cab driver asking him to find us what we had been told was a memorial, uh, for the victims of this gulag. And so, I'll just read here. Sergey and I waved down a taxi. Our driver, a young guy in a black leather jacket, has never heard of this place. Gulag, Sergey keeps saying to him. My colleague finally makes a phone call to a local museum, hands the phone to the driver to hear the directions, and we're on our way. The driver's blasting techno music with English lyrics that in no way align with my mood. Neither Sergey nor I are speaking. I'm in the back seat watching Rubinsk pass by. There's the jet engine factory where Nikita's dad works, a sprawling, dirty complex that probably hasn't changed much since Soviet times. We continue through the center of town, past a snow statue of Russia's Santa Claus. Weeks after Orthodox Christmas, it's probably time for Santa to be relieved of his duties. The red paint from his hat is bleeding into muddy snow, but no one's taken him down yet. And just outside town, we pull over, and our driver points across a field to what appears to be nothing more than a clump of snow. Sergei and I tromp about 50 yards, and as we approach, we see that the mound of snow is actually covering a rock. There's a plaque on the front of the rock that Sergei translates for me. This is the beginning of remembering victims of the Volga camps. It says beginning, Sergei points out. I can see his breath in the frigid cold. Because, David, we could not talk about this for many, many years. We could not see monuments like this. We couldn't see anything. In other words, in this country, some tragedies happened long ago, but there is a reality that outsiders might struggle to understand. Since public displays of emotion were frowned upon for years, many Russians are just now coming to terms with their history and the pain. They're only now beginning to mourn what was lost. 
In the snow beside the rock, just below and to the left of the plaque, there's a bunch of flowers. They're red roses, fresh, as if put there within the past day or so, and I can't help but count the number, six. And so you imagine the power of that moment to me, because Sergey and I had just decided that we could bring five flowers to Nikita's mom because she had moved past a tragedy. But someone had brought six roses to a gulag memorial um, where people died decades ago, but had clearly felt deep in their soul that, you know, this was still a time to express pain. And, and it was just a reminder to me how much pain sort of lives as the backdrop to, to so much of, of life in Russia. Uh, I want to take us to, to a couple other stops. Um, there's a village uh, in the center of Russia in the Ural Mountains uh, near the city of Yekaterinburg uh, called Sagra. And Sergey and I went on both of our train trips to Sagra. Uh, I was fascinated by the place. Uh, it's a little village, um, sort of a smattering of, of kind of dilapidated homes, wooden homes. Um, uh, in the wintertime, everything covered in snow. Every home has, you know, firewood outside covered in tarps. It's a, it's a, it's a hub of the timber industry. Uh, the train flies by every so often. There are animals kind of wandering around. Uh, it, there's one store in the town of Sagra that sells, uh, it's a produkti, which is sort of a, a mini-marked in Russian, and I would say 80% of what they sell is vodka. They have an entire sort of wall full of every kind of cheap vodka you could possibly imagine. And there was, um, there was a criminal gang uh, that had been sort of making its presence known in Sagra over a period of time, and villagers were getting more and more upset seeing this. Uh, there were a lot of questions about whether this gang was coming in to, to cause trouble, to you know, get involved in the timber industry somehow. Um, but there was one particular evening when a neighbor up the road saw that there were you know, a dozen or so of these gang members coming into the city and, on an evening and warned the rest of the villagers. And the villagers called the police. And as is not surprising at all in Russia, the police never showed up. Uh, and the villagers took rifles and pitchforks and basically fought off uh, this gang. And one of the gang members was killed. And immediately, the local authorities charged the villagers with hooliganism. And in Russia, being charged with something uh, is usually the end of the story. The conviction rate for people who are charged with crimes is astonishingly high in the upper 90%. Um, and, and so there's, there's no expectation of justice or a fair trial. Uh, and so these villagers, it would have seemed their fate was basically sealed, but these villagers decided to fight back, which is kind of unprecedented. Uh, they hired a human rights attorney and they started drawing attention to what had happened and getting the facts out, uh, that they were actually trying to defend their village. And the picture that emerged, you could sort of see that one of the reasons the local authorities might have tried to push this narrative that it was the villagers' fault was if this gang was actually a threat and the police didn't show up, then the police wouldn't look so good. Um, and so time went by, 
And because they publicized uh, what was happening and sort of shamed local officials, uh, the unthinkable happened. And the villagers were, the charges were dropped. And I was always fascinated by Sagra because to me, that seemed to be kind of a, a hint of democratic values. The idea that, you know, getting the truth out and taking truth to power can be very meaningful um, and can bring change. And so I was really curious to sort of listen to people in Sagra and, and see what lessons they had learned from this whole experience. And so both times we were in Sagra, we spent time with the Gorodilov family. Uh, Victor Gorodilov was one of the villagers. Um, he's this uh, sort of gregarious, fun guy who kept feeding my wife, um, I think, pepper vodka, telling her that it would make her stomach feel better. Uh, we were eating lots of food and having a great time. Uh, he, he reminds me of a lumberjack. I mean, wear these flannel sweaters and was just was just very loving. Uh, his son Andrei Gordilov uh, lived in Yekaterinburg, and um, so was sort of a fish out of water when he would come to the village and visit his father. But he was spending a lot of time there during the campaign to to kind of get his father off the hook. Uh, and so Andre would come, and I really connected to him because he uh, was in his 30s, like me. Uh, he loved to travel. He loved to talk about foreign affairs. His wife was trying to start her own business. My wife was talking about starting her own business, a restaurant. We got back to Washington. So I really bonded with him and felt this connection. Uh, there's one conversation I had that, that really, really stood out for me. And let me just read it to you. So Andre had said that publicity was our protection, and that really meant a lot to me. It seemed to summarize what had happened. So he said, in this case, publicity was our protection. Okay, Andre, publicity is your protection, a belief that the truth can expose a corrupt power. Aren't those democratic values? Yes, Andre says, and we have to protect them. When I studied at university, I was taught that the police, the authorities, should fulfill their duties for the state. Their only motivation should be, what can I do for the people? But the state machine that we have works in favor of itself. I remember the lectures. They're supposed to work for the people. So a government for the people, I say. And Andre cuts me off. He senses where I'm going. But our Russian mentality has to be protected, too. Russian mentality? You can't impose an ideology on a country, he says. Other people often talk about Russians as lazy alcoholics. I'm not lazy, and I don't drink, and I don't smoke. This accusation of laziness has him animated. In Soviet times, the flight of stairs was cut off for a Russian person. He can't move up. If and when this formula changes, then everything will work, and we'll feel those values. We're on to a second plate of meat and pickles now, refreshed from the fridge. So, Andre, what now? Are Russians just waiting? This will develop gradually, he says. But no, we can't just sit and wait. Well, you told me last time I was here that the answer is not a bloody revolution, I say. Right, he says. That would be death to our country. But the answer is also not to sit and wait, I ask. Civil society needs to be developed, he says. We all have to take our own small steps. Truth be told, that comes directly from the message playbook of Vladimir Putin and his cronies. They often say that Russia's citizenry is not yet developed enough to have true democracy. Did the experience here give you personally more faith in these values we're talking about, I ask? Andre pauses. When all this happened, I made a lot of friends. And in our life, the most important value is the human resource. So you can see how nuanced 
Andreas. Um, and I kind of wanted him to have this perfect analysis of what had happened. Like, you know, oh, wow, I, I experienced the democracy that you're familiar with in the United States. This is great. And, you know, it's interesting. I was actually dinged by a few reviewers of this book um, who suggested that I took a very American-centric approach um, to Russia and had a kind of an expectation that Russia would want uh, American-style democracy. And I'm very interested to see what, how you react because, you know, my own read of my own words <laughs> um, is that that's very much the opposite. It was sort of an acknowledgement of um, the mistake that we make in making those assumptions. Um, I think that I grew up as a teenager watching the fall of the Soviet Union and just making this ridiculous assumption that every country in the world uh, would sort of be on this automatic, uh, inevitable path to our style of democracy. And everything that's happened since then has has taught me, you know, how wrong it is to make that assumption. And so, you know, Andre's nuanced kind of view and his pushback was really meaningful to me. And he's very familiar with what's happening in the world. You know, he said to me, look at Libya. You know, Gaddafi is a terrible leader, but what's happened since he was removed from power? You know, is Libya better off now without Gaddafi? You know, I don't want the anarchy that they have. And, you know, I might not agree with that if I'm sitting with Andre. I might hope that removing a dictator gives a country a chance for self-determination to, to you know, go through even what could be difficult times, but to find a future. Uh, but you can also see Andre's point. I also asked him, you know, is he concerned living under a regime, Vladimir Putin, who could be in power for three decades as either president or prime minister? And he looked at me and he started naming off names. He said, Bush, Clinton, Clinton, Bush, Bush, Obama, Obama, Bush or Clinton, Bush or Clinton. And I was like, okay. And he said, and what is that electoral college and how is that democratic? I was like, okay, okay. Um, but, you know, you can see that the relationship that a Russian like Andre has with the idea of democracy is really complicated. It's not something that he craves and believes is the right answer. Um, he's very pragmatic, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, not that Vladimir Putin is some hero to him. He certainly doesn't think that, but it's, it's very complicated. And, you know, Andre to me, I think, you know, is just such a reminder for not just Russians, but Ukrainians and others um, that, you know, the world is not so simple. You know, it's not like you wake up in the morning in country X and you have a multiple choice test where you get to say, OK, do I want a democracy or do I want an authoritarian regime tomorrow morning? Like, let me just choose. Uh, you know, the world is so much more complicated. You make choices about what you need for you and your family. You make choices based on what you've seen in your country. You know, if democracy or, or other systems have arrived and been tested and succeeded or failed, the world is just much more complicated. And so I want to finish with um, with something a little a little more fun than uh, than sort of what political systems we we sort of expect in different countries. Uh, Russia's a wild place, uh, and the culture and the people are addictive to me. Um, and I will think about this country the rest of my life and and want to return there and and plan to. Um, the people I met were inspiring and loving and frustrating and, I mean, every sort of emotion you could describe. Uh, 
I had quite an evening uh, with a man named Vasily. Uh, Vasily, uh, I'll, I'll give you sort of the backdrop. It's if you are a Russian journalist, uh, you are doing your work in a country that is uh, more dangerous than most any country in the world. Um, and being a journalist, uh, an independent journalist, when you're Russian, uh, is incredibly risky and, and very dangerous. And, and I tip my hat to, to Russian journalists and, and the work that they do. As a Western journalist, knock on wood, uh, you know, the, the Russian authorities don't really threaten us that much. But you do tend to get a little paranoid because, uh, for example, my wife and I were convinced that our apartment was bugged. Um, we joked about why we had nine smoke detectors. Um, and I would be followed, uh, you know, in some cases I was almost happy to be followed in kind of restive regions like Dagestan. You know, I'd rather know that the Russian authorities were kind of there trailing me and I was being very transparent about who I was rather than, you know, surprising them and, and being caught off guard and them thinking that I was someone I, I wasn't. But so you live in this life, especially when you're traveling to remote regions of paranoia where you, you, you can think that, you know, people are following you or, or out to get you when, when they're actually not. Um, so there was one night in, in a, the village of Uva uh, where we were meeting up with a group of singing babushkas, which is a whole other story that I'll, that I'll let you read about in the book. They do Beatles covers. Um, but so Sergey and I were looking for a hotel, and, and I'll just read here. Being followed by people can get into your head and make you paranoid. Sergey and I find a hotel a short walk away. The place is small, wooden, drab, with just six small rooms. Seems entirely empty, but as we walk across the creaky wooden floors and back toward our rooms, a man walks out of another room and immediately introduces himself. My name's Vasily, he says in broken English. I extend a hand to shake. David. Nice to meet you. My name's David. We carry on a simple conversation and a mix of basic Russian and English. Vasily learns that I'm a journalist from America working on a book, and I learn he's a doctor on business in Uva. Vasily says we are the only people staying at this hotel. Banya, he suddenly says, motioning outside. There's evidently a banya, a traditional Russian bathhouse attached to the hotel, and Vasily's proposing we join him there. Sivodnya vecherum, he says, tonight. I give a nod that I hope agrees to nothing more than maybe. Here's a moment when I want to believe this is Russia giveth, but I fear it is taketh, and I am caught in between. Vasily seems as unthreatening as you can imagine, a short, unassuming, friendly guy in his 50s with thinning hair and a bushy little mustache. He probably just wants a few friends to drink and steam the night away with. Then again, isn't it odd that he is the only other person staying in this hotel? Isn't it odd that he happened to be coming out of his room just as we were checking in? Could he actually be working with the FSB, which is the modern-day KGB? I wrestle with whether I should let my paranoia and suspicion stand in the way of meeting a fellow traveler. I want to go to the banya, but I feel like precautions are in order. Maybe it's going overboard, but I decide that we should be on guard, especially if there is food or drink presented by Vasily. I prefer that Sergei and I never both consume the same item in case he has laced it with poison and intends to rob us. The banya is a truly Russian experience, and Vasily does it up. We meet him after dinner time in the small wooden building next to the hotel. He's brought beer, a bottle of vodka, glasses for both, pickles, and homemade horse sausage from his hometown a few hours away. All this is spread out over a wooden table. Vasily's banya ready in a green tank top and shorts. We've agreed that I'll partake of the bathing itself. Unlike most Russian men, Sergei is not all that fond of the banya anyway, and he can stand guard over our things. Vasily tells us that, in fact, he is the chairman of his local banya society. So I am presumably in good hands. 
He instructs me to remove my clothing as much as I'd like. Some men go full money. I typically hang on to the boxer shorts, and I am pretty happy that Vasily does the same. <laughs> Sergey, are you good? I say, looking at my colleague seated before a spread of horse meat and beer. I'm good, David. You enjoy. Vasily walks me through a thick wooden door into the next chamber where he tends to some mechanics. He opens the metal door to a compartment and ensures that a burning fire has a pile of stones good and hot. We then move to the third room of the wooden cabin, the bathhouse. There are wooden benches, and I sit comfortably on one as Vasily opens another metal door, accessing the same compartment from this room, and douses hot stones with water. There's a sizzling sound, and the heat in the bathhouse goes immediately from really, really hot to unbearable. I am sweating profusely. Arr! Vasily is making some animal sounds, suggesting that he's enjoying the heat. I would not call it enjoyable, but I do feel and appreciate the therapeutic nature of all this. I take a deep breath. The air's hot and clean as it runs into my lungs. David, he's trying to get my attention. This is not my first rodeo, so I know what's about to happen. As per Russian tradition, Vasily has taken a birch branch, the vinic, out of a bucket where it was soaking, and he is motioning for me to lie down. I do, and he proceeds to whack me violently with the branch while making that animal noise. I really can appreciate most Banya traditions, but the idea that violent contact with birch somehow adds to this experience seems like a stretch. After a few whacks, though, Vasily lies down and I return the favor. After ten minutes of this, we both return to the middle chamber where the next tradition awaits. There is a bucket of ice-cold water. I dump it over myself, screaming bloody murder, but knowing that somehow this is making me a healthier and happier person, because why would generations of Russian men have done it otherwise? Vasily does his dunk, both dripping wet and shivering. We return to Sergei and sit at the table. How was it? Oh, great, Sergei, thanks. Sure you don't want to turn? Yes. Sausage, Vasily says, holding a chunk of horse meat in his right hand and a large sharp knife in his left. By this point, Sergei and I have concluded that Vasily seems genuinely harmless, though Sergei still decides not to drink the beer or vodka, and I take one for the team. Vasily and I are sharing a small bench in boxer shorts, our wet bodies all but touching. So you're a doctor, I ask, with Sergei generously translating. I'm a doctor of alternative medicine, he says, for animals. I'm here to treat cattle around Uva. They've been having infections in their hooves. He then cuts two hunks of horse sausage. We both chew them and wash them down with beer. I have a special honey that I invented that treats ailments. I can give you some when we go back to the hotel, he says. Vasily and I talk into the night about our jobs, our professions, and our countries. You know, David, if you and I ran these two countries, there would have been no Cold War, he says. We find this funnier than Sergei does, perhaps helped by the beer and the vodka. Just another night on the Russian Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, so I will stop there. Uh, I hope that gives you a window into sort of what this country means to me, the approach I took and, and this book. And uh, I just really appreciate your interest and would, would be glad to, to take any questions you have. So thank you. Since we're taping this for podcasting, we really like to hear your questions, and so I'm going to pass the microphone around. So. Thank you. That was absolutely fascinating and funny, too. Um, I'm wondering about the general diet of the people that you met as you went across Russia and Siberia and um, their health. And I wondered if you noticed um, a change as you went from Moscow to Vladivostok in that area. 
I there were there were definitely changes. Um, I don't know uh, if it was a matter of sort of getting more rural health declined or not. Uh, I think that the life expectancy of men is one of the the really scariest things in Russia. It, it dipped down to 58 or 59 years old, um, you know, in, in the mid-2000s. I think it's come back above 60, uh, but a combination of alcoholism um, and just, hard, hard work during Soviet times has men very, very unhealthy and and sadly likely to die. Uh, And so one thing you do notice because of that is very strong, independent women in this country. And, you know, you see kind of the the image of um the babushka you know a a grandmother um you know on the on the side of a road selling fruit or carrying huge packages dragging them on the train doing shopping uh you know i I really that the story uh, that i didn't get to tonight but um the baranova babushkas are this singing group um and they're amazing uh they many of them lost their husbands and they lived in a village. Um, they're from the uh, ethnic Udmurt population, which is one of these small ethnic groups in in Russia. And uh, you know, they they weren't allowed to really use their own language during Soviet times. And and so post Soviet times, they wanted to rebuild their church. And so they started doing this singing to try and rebuild their church. They did Beatles covers. These YouTube videos went viral, um, and they ended up representing Russia at, uh, at Eurovision and came in second place, which was just stunning. I mean, I, I, I challenge you to, to literally search on YouTube for the Baranova Babushkas at Eurovision in Azerbaijan, watch them on stage, and I challenge you not to cry because it is one of the most emotional things you will ever see. But they kind of embody the strong women of Russia, which is really inspiring, but, but it often is also a product of, of the health of men, which is, which is really sad. Yeah. Thank you. Play hot potato with the microphone. <laughs> so if uh, one was planning a trip, um, I assume you would not recommend staying on the train the whole time. So what kind of breaks would one take? Travel for a day or two and visit a village? Or can you make some recommendations in that, in that regard? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, the, sky is, the sky is the limit, really. I mean, it takes about six days on the train itself if you stayed on the train the entire time. And I do not recommend staying on the train the entire time. Uh, I think our longest leg was something like 70 hours. And it was, we were, I mean, like ready to kill each other. I mean, it, it's, it's that, you get really claustrophobic. Um, but, you know, it depends how much time you have. You know, I, we did one of the trips in about four weeks, one in maybe a little more than that. Uh, and that gave us a chance to, you know, stop in you know, seven or eight places along the way. Uh, you know, Lake Baikal in the far east of Russia is one of the most gorgeous places I've ever seen. Uh, and there's a lot of sort of adventure tourism you can do there. You can bike across Lake Baikal because it freezes during, uh, you can ski. Um, the tourism infrastructure is not what we're accustomed to in the United States. And so you kind of have to be ready for that. Um, you know, you could do a tour of Russian cities, you know, Novosibirsk, Yekaterinburg, um, Krasnoyarsk, Irkutsk, 
Omsk, all these really interesting cities along the way, you know, where there are hotels and, and places that, you know, are sort of more comfortable. Um, and Russian guidebooks are pretty good. I think the biggest thing, you know, especially if you don't know the language, you have to sort of like a very unpredictable trip uh, because trains, you know, you'll think that you understand the train schedules, but it actually turns out, oh, on this day, they listed all the schedules on Moscow time. And so you missed your train or you got to the train station seven hours early or your ticket is actually not good for this train or actually someone paid off the conductor and they are sleeping on your bed. Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, strange things can happen and, you know, they're not things that are threatening to your safety, but they're threatening to your psyche. Uh, and, you know, you, you have to sort of go into it with that, that feel. We, um, we, my wife and I, when we lived in Moscow, designed this trip that was not across the country, but, but it was a little, a little more tame. We would suggest that our friends come to Moscow, spend uh, you know, three or four days in Moscow, take the overnight train to St. Petersburg, which is really magical and very romantic, uh, spend a few days in St. Petersburg, which is just an incredible city. The Hermitage Museum rivals the Louvre. I really mean that. Uh, and then you can take a, a, a luxury bus line into the Baltics and go to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, r- amazing countries. Um, and, and the trip sort of gets more comfortable as you go because you go from Moscow, the hardest city, to St. Petersburg, a little more tourist friendly to, you know, three EU countries where, you know, I mean, it's it just gets easier and easier. And you can take the ferry to Helsinki and fly home. Uh, so that was a trip that we, we really recommended to people who were not, you know, kind of determined to do a crazy train trip. But if you ever want to do the crazy train trip, I will, I'll give you all the advice you need. Don't talk to my wife, though. She'll talk, talk you out of it. So that... Not third class, yeah, anyway. Exactly. I was wondering if you experienced uh, Russians uh, living outside of Mother Russia in Ukraine, in the Baltics, uh, all the areas of the former Soviet Union and how they um, felt uh, their Russian identity, their presence in a country like Ukraine, uh, what the relationships were maybe on a personal level or you know, what, what we were seeing happening in, in uh, uh, eastern Ukraine right now. You know, the, the, the Russian-speaking diaspora is really fascinating, and I think it's sort of at the, at the fault line of the, the conflict that we're seeing today. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you two places where I've sort of been, you know, fairly recently. One is Estonia, uh, you know, a very Western-leaning country, uh, democracy, um, lived through the horrific pain of, of Soviet times. Um, uh, they have a president who uh, is, you know, all but American himself. Uh, he was educated at Columbia and uh, grew up in Sweden and New Jersey and then went back to Estonia uh, to reclaim his family's property. And so he's leading this country where there is a Russian-speaking minority largely concentrated uh, in this eastern city called Narva, which is right on the Russian border. Um, It's actually where I believe, uh, if you saw the news about the Estonian spy who was kind of 
grabbed by the Russian authorities and, and dragged across the border in Narvas where it happened. And so um, recently, the president has been pushing very, very aggressive language laws to, uh, you know, they've been removing Russian language from a lot of the signs in Narva, uh, forcing teachers who have, you know, spent long careers teaching in Russian because, you know, almost every student speaks Russian and not Estonian, but forcing them to learn Estonian or lose their jobs. And I went to interview uh, the president of Estonia and uh, my wife was really angry at me. You know, I'm the, I'm the journalist who has to be balanced. She's the, you know, the spouse of a journalist who can sort of speak her mind to her husband when she wants to. Um, and, you know, I was sort of seeing both sides and, and talking to the president about, you know, do you think that these are overly aggressive? Do you think it could anger the Russian minority? I mean, why are you taking teachers who, you know, have, have spent years teaching just in Russian and forcing them to learn Estonian this quickly? You know, his answer was, you don't understand the pain of what this country went through. And, you know, we cannot allow kind of the, the Russian identity to grow so much that it becomes a threat. And uh, my wife sort of sided with the president of Estonia much, much more so. Um, but, uh, you know, I was being the journalist and seeing both sides of this argument. Um, but that's sort of one example. And so uh, there's been this feeling that the Baltics might destabilize at some point, you know, if Russian speaking minorities like that in Narva, you know, sort of rise up um, in the same way that we saw in eastern Ukraine. Another example is Crimea. I was there in October. Uh, Crimea has. Um, many, many Russian speakers. Uh, there's, you know, a, a younger, sort of more educated um, part of society that uh, was very pro-Western. Many of, of, um, many of them have, have fled Crimea and gone to Kiev and gone elsewhere in Europe. Uh, there are the Crimean Tatars, a uh, minority that um, was so persecuted by Stalin, basically shipped in rail cars to Central Asia, and half of them died after World War II. Uh, they've been coming back to reclaim their land in Crimea. And when we were there, you know, some young Tatar men were being kidnapped and disappeared. I mean, it was just awful, you know, since the Russians had, had returned. But there were a lot of people in Crimea who felt such a deep connection to Moscow and to Russian culture. And I think it sort of made a, a, a decision that, that Andrei Gordilov had made, that in this kind of dangerous world, they did not feel that they could count on the Ukrainian government. Um, and on balance, you know, they felt a closer connection to Moscow and they were very happy that Russia had returned to Crimea. And I actually got, I was, I didn't, I moderated an event at Freedom House in Washington yesterday, looking at uh, kind of the erosion of democracy in Eastern Europe and, and in Eurasia. And I got uh, into big trouble by basically saying that, you know, based on what I learned in Crimea, you know, if Russia had actually pushed through a political process that was accepted by the world, um, you know, whatever that would be, and again, this is just hypothesizing, but if it had been an independence referendum that had been legitimate, I think Crimeans, you know, probably would have voted in some majority to secede from Ukraine. And if there had been another election, you know, whether or not to join Russia, you know, it might have been 60%, you know, 58%, I don't know, but it, it probably would have been a majority. Now, it was an international crime the way this was carried out because Russia basically occupied and used force and, and held a sham referendum where the turnout in Sevastopol was 117%. Um, but, you know, it's, that, that just, it, it's a reminder that, that in these places, and, that, and that's the complexity of, of eastern Ukraine. Uh, you know, there, 
there's I think there's very little doubt that Russia is involved militarily there, but sort of what people want and the sort of the personal political choices they're making and and sort of what they see as best for their future, it's much more nuanced and complicated and it's hard to sort of draw draw conclusions. I tend to subscribe to uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's assessment of American foreign policy since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, that uh, with the victory of capitalism, so-called, uh, we've tended to stick it to the Russians. Uh, go, whether you go back to the first George Bush through Clinton, W, and now Obama st- uh, staging troops in uh, Eastern European countries on Russia's border, uh, it seems to me we've isolated Russia uh, and... Um, instead of perhaps undertaking a Marshall Plan for Russia that might have uh, prevented a, a, a Vladimir Putin. And I, I wonder what your own sense is of American foreign policy vis-a-vis Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, one thing I'll, I'll say about American foreign policy is it doesn't always seem like it takes into account kind of Russian interests. Um, I think it's very easy for Americans, both policymakers and, and all of us in some cases, to, to kind of just assume the worst of Russian intentions. And I wonder sometimes if better diplomacy is to at least, you know, even if there are evils that you see, try and empathize and, and come from a place of trying to understand these interests. And, you know, I, I think if you look at the NATO campaign in Libya, um, and I'm actually going to be at the Aspen Ideas Festival next week with the UN ambassador from Russia on stage. And I really want to ask him about this because, you know, my understanding of what happened was the Russians, you know, were going to veto um, at the Security Council the resolution to approve bombing uh, in Tripoli and forcing out Gaddafi. And the Russians got assurances from the U.S., from Britain, from France, that a bombing campaign was not imminent. And they begged the Russians to abstain you know, basically, and the Russians did. And they were given an assurance that that nothing was going to happen. And, you know, NATO bombs were falling within days. And so, you know, you look at a day like last week, and Vladimir Putin went, you know, absolutely out of his mind, and was talking about, you know, new ballistic nuclear weapons and set up Patriots Park, this new amusement park where he's teaching Russian children about Russian weaponry and the military and talking about this threat from the West. You know, it can be hard probably as a policymaker to try and empathize with Vladimir Putin. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's a, you know, I think it's a, it's a good read. Um, and, you know, you have to wonder, I had, I had, I interviewed George W. Bush when he came out with a book about his father uh, at the end of last year and had this really interesting exchange with him because he had written in the book, he praised his father for what was known as the chicken Kiev speech where, um, you know, George H.W. Bush had made a decision that, you know, to forcefully support the nationalists in Ukraine at that moment would have empowered the hardliners in Moscow and undermined Gorbachev. And so he kind of was restrained. And many people in the West thought it was really wimpy. Uh, And I turned things around on, on the younger Bush. And I said, you know, the Orange Revolution, did you, you know, did your dancing and gloating in a way, embolden Vladimir Putin and make him into the leader he is today? Would your father's more measured approach 
have been a better idea. And, you know, he pushed back and said Vladimir Putin would be this Vladimir Putin no matter what. Um, doesn't matter what he would have done. And it was worth sort of celebrating democracy. You know, that's, that's, that's a legitimate argument. But, um, but I think it's a really good question. Yeah. Kind of brings up, you mentioned the sand scene in uh, 2011. Have you met like Pussy Riot people and all those guys? I did. I got to interview oh, interview Pussy Riot in New York when they came to the United States. Oh, they yeah. um, okay. they uh, they're a trip. Uh, they <laughs> they came and we did the interview. Um, and they, uh, I I think they were they needed to use our internet in our New York bureau, and so they. Uh, they were about 15, 20 minutes late getting into the studio. So I was pushing for more time. And at some point, they just basically walked out of the studio. They were like, we got to go. I'm David, really sorry. It's been fun. It's been, it's been real. Um, but uh, yeah, they don't, they, they, don't, they don't take you know what from anyone. Yeah. Uh, they're very, very strong women and really impressive. No more questions. Everyone is satisfied. Oh, right here. One of the stereotypes, perhaps, of Russians to us is they, they like a strong leader. They long for Stalin back again, and that's why they like Putin. The, the regular Russian people you talk to, is that accurate at all? Is Yeah. I mean, I, I think when you hear someone say that, you know, Gaddafi was a strong but terrible but strong leader and Libya is worse off without him, um, is sort of speaks to that. Uh, but the Stalinist nostalgia is really confusing to me. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book about a woman near Lake Baikal who's a real progressive activist, and she was fighting the authorities. She was fighting uh, for the environment to keep Lake Baikal clean. I mean, she was just really just fighting for everything. And, uh, you know, I... She said the most frustrating thing was that, you know, it didn't seem like other Russians cared about the fight. And she wanted to get more Russians, you know, kind of lining up behind her. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, you know what we need? And she went to her bookshelf and she pulled out a biography of Stalin. And I'm looking at this book. I mean, I was shocked. And I just said, so he's the answer? Yeah, we need someone who can kind of bring us together and bring order and bring us behind something. And I said, you're talking about a guy who killed a whole lot of people. And she said, well, we don't need that part of him. <laughs> and, you know, I, I asked her, you know, I, can you really have the good sides of Stalin without the bad? Um, but that's an impulse. I mean, there is some, some sort of feeling of, of pride and a sense of identity and, and reaching back to, you know, those earlier times with some level of fondness. Uh, and that's happening in Russia. And I think, uh, you know, Russian observers are spending a lot of time sort of pondering why. Is, okay. Is there ethnic tension in Russia? And if so, uh, where is it most intense between which groups? Uh, the, the North Caucasus. Um, it's uh, Dagestan, Chechnya, Ingushetia, um, Russian authorities, and this goes back to Putin, you know, fighting two wars in Chechnya. Uh, the Russian authorities are are brutal, rounding up, you know, young Muslim men. Uh, it's one of the reasons in Crimea that I think you were seeing Tatars kind of rounded up. Um, if you're Caucasian, if you're 
if you have darker skin, you know, you will be probably stopped by police much more on the Moscow Metro. Um, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's racism. Uh, you can feel it. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of questions about what's going on. You know, Putin has been accused of basically taking these aggressive policies to stoke conflict in the North Caucasus because he learned that wars in Chechnya make him more popular. Um, that's one accusation. If you try and look at Putin's side, um, you know, he has been bizarre, you know, oddly validated in a way because he has always made the case that, that Sunni extremism is the scariest thing in the world. And this is why he has always spoken about, he doesn't understand why the United States is close to Saudi Arabia and we worry about, you know, being close to Iran because the Russians have always, you know, trusted a Shia government like in Iran and have basically argued that extremist forces, Sunni extremist forces are really a threat. And the growth of ISIS, I think Putin has felt really emboldened and validated. Uh, but, you know, those eth the ethnic tensions are, are really, it's, it's Putin takes a very hard line on what he says is a threat from the North Caucasus. Um, and what people in those provinces will tell you, if, you know, when I was in Dagestan talking to people, it's, it's the, the actions of the Russian authorities and rounding up young innocent men is what is causing people to radicalize and, and nothing else. Um, much less so. I, I don't think it's as much, you know, if, if you go to Russia's Far East, Mongolia, China, uh, there's not as much ethnic tension. Um, I think there, there are more questions sort of broadly about, you know, what Russia wants, what China wants, whether the interests of those two countries will merge uh, or not merge, and if they do merge, kind of what that means for the United States. And that's going to be really interesting to follow. But if, if you talk about ethnic tensions. I May mean, I look more towards, towards the Caucasus? Sure. Thank you. Can I just ask you um, how your friend Sergei is and what, what he's doing and do you communicate with him? Often? Yeah, no, I, I communicate with him all the time. He actually was collecting sound of Putin's Patriots Park the other day in Moscow and we used it on a piece for a piece in Morning Edition. He works very closely with my successor in Moscow, Corey Flintoff. Um, uh, I saw Sergey when uh, I went to Crimea. I was stopped in Moscow for a few days. Um, I don't want to give away the book, but uh, his son was in a really uncertain place in the book because he's pursuing a medical career uh, and um, was hoping to avoid the mandatory military service. And it looked like it looks like he has, which is great. Uh, sadly, Sergey's father passed away, and, and you'll read about him in the book. But Sergey's doing really, really well, and uh, is a you know, a, a dear friend and an NPR colleague. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really Thank wonderful. You Thank you so much.